You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Olinger, as always, joined by Sean Kennedy and joined by our good friend Dan Volpone, also here from Liberty Ballers. Uh, Dan, how are you doing? And Sean, how are you doing? You guys can just, I should introduce, I introduced you both at the same time for some reason. I'm, I'm good. Um, excited to see Dario Saric reach his first NBA Finals. Yes. Uh, now and forever proving the, the process worked. Um, that was the the final pin we were waiting to fall was a, a, a core four guy to reach the final. So it's happened. Uh, Sam Hinkie was right. And uh, yeah, looking forward to TJ McConnell reaching the finals next year. <laughs> yeah, I'm good too. I like, obviously the playoffs from a Sixers perspective sucked, but they're pretty awesome from like an NBA fan perspective and Dario like, getting to the finals rocks. I mean, the part that sucks about this playoffs as much as I've still enjoyed it a ton is just all the injuries. It just it's it sucks when you see guys get injured, like no matter who they are, but especially like such great players. Like, dude, I was like, I don't know about you guys. When I saw Giannis go down and grab his knee in real time, I was like, oh no, like just it looked be, bad. That it seems like it's not like something like he tore his ACL, like not kind of major injury, but like he could definitely miss the next few games. And again, like if the Hawks win the title, like I'm pretty sure we're folding the site. So, <laughs> I mean, Sean, you're a higher power. What do you say to that? I, I say we keep it open. The site has seen some bad times over the years. Uh, we thrive in these periods of turmoil. I think it'll be a more comfort zone for us than this uh, recent run of success. So I feel like... We're a, great at complaining. Yeah, it'll be like... A, putting on an, an old favorite pair of sweats. <laughs> uh, well, trying to think about those comforting times, that is actually what this week's pod is about. If you guys remember from last week, we went a little bit over like on our original plans and did not get to what was supposed to be just our three favorite moments of the Sixer season. So instead, it's going to be us two plus Dan on today to talk about all of our favorite moments from the Sixer season, which, you know, up until that second round series was going really, really well probably the fun, most fun we'd ever had in the season. So it, we're just going to like block out all the pain and try and remember the good times. Um, Sean, Dan, is that, do either of you have one you want to get started with like talking about? Uh, well, I'll get the most me possible answer out of the way, which is the time I really thought we were going to trade for James Harden <laughs> before we didn't the, uh, the, the day of when, you know, that day was crazy. Oh, yeah. Um, there was, you know, nonstop news from Woj and Shams and and Stein and like everyone else kind of too. Um, and we knew that that was going to be the day and it was going to be either the Sixers or the Nets. And I was imagining championships and and lots of foul shots. And it was a lot of fun until it didn't happen. So that was one of my favorite moments that was then followed by an awful one. But it was fun while it lasted. That's a very... That's a very interesting take that when we're supposed to say, oh, this is the Good Times podcast getting it started off on the time we didn't end up making the James Harden trade and maybe should have. even if. But it was fun when we almost did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sean, you so, have anything to add on that? Well, a guy who was responsible for almost getting James Harden here, I'll say one of my favorite moments. I don't know if we're qualifying this as the past season, but the past 12 months was definitely Daryl Morey becoming the president of basketball operations for the Sixers. Um, I think another year of Elton and who, whoever else could possibly like walk into the room and, and help out with the decision-making, the team collaboration, I think we were all re really ready to move on from that. Uh, 
and just Daryl coming here when he's been long regarded as one of the top and most innovative minds in the NBA and the fact that he was Sam Hinkie's mentor uh, all those years ago. And it kind of, uh, it, it was a nice full circle moment to uh, process trusters out there to just after Hinkie was, you know, unceremoniously kind of forced out uh, by team Colangelo to have Daryl come in and hopefully, you know, at the moment we're like, Oh, well, Daryl can, you know, finish what Sam started. And obviously that didn't quite work out this year, but um, you know, we, we're still hopeful with a, a, a full off season and uh, Joel Embiid at the, at the peak of his powers uh, moving forward next season, there's they're still hope for the future. So uh, yeah, just, just knowing that we have a, a lead front office guy that we all feel very confident in. I think that's uh, one of the top takeaways from this past season um, and 12 months for me. Yeah. I mean, no matter how you like feel like if you feel like Daryl Morey didn't do his best and not getting James Harden, I mean, of course the, the counter to that is always like that Tillman Fertitta hated Daryl Morey for leaving the Rockets and just, he was not going to trade him unless it was a completely like, unfair deal, like asking more of the Sixers than they were of the Nets. You, you can say whatever you want with that. It's still really nice to have him see some of the moves the Sixers were able to pull off. Like we talked about, they killed this last, last draft class. Tyrese Maxey, Isaiah Joe, and Paul Reed, like a very good player in Maxey. And then two guys who might – you if you get two rotation players maybe in the future out of the two second-round picks, that's like unbelievable to have that – to pull that off. And then, I mean, also happened on draft night – the Seth Curry for Josh Richardson trade, like, we can't talk enough about how much of the win that was. Like, the Mavericks had other have other problems, but, like, that trade alone is like, played a crucial role in maybe, like, tearing down the Mavericks franchise because it, like, made their team much worse. It seemed to piss off Luka, which is, like, uh, the number one, number two things you don't want to do if you're the Dallas Mavericks. So that was an unbelievable trade. And I actually did want to mention this. I didn't look it up, but I was pretty sure it wasn't the – game that happened right before the Harden trade the Miami Heat overtime game where Dakota Mathias hit the game winning three because that was the game Ben Simmons only had three points and like fouled out and because it was so that's why everyone thought the trade was about to happen is because I remember someone tweeting like you know that was probably not a great time for Ben to have that game because it was like right at the moment remember Ben was really struggling the first month of the season and it was after the Harden trade that he went on his two-month surge that got him into another all-star selection. So it's just kind of like remembering all that. Like, that was an incredible game when Dakota hit that shot. Joel Embiid was incredible in that game, basically, because it was Embiid. Um, I think Seth was still out with COVID. Embiid, like Dakota Mathias, Isaiah Joe. Danny Green hit nine threes but attempted 21. Like He had no one that game too, right? What did you say? Didn't the Heat have everyone out that game? Yeah, it was a very weird game. He had most of their players out because it was like a lot of a large portion of the game was Dakota Mathias versus Max Struess out there. Yeah, Max Struess, yes. The Struess was on the loose, but um, <laughs> they you no know, that that was a fun game to see. Like, I mean, I have I ho- only hold good feelings toward Dakota Mathias. I don't know about you guys. Oh, well, for that, sure. Yeah, as Dan pointed out uh, while we were talking off air before the episode, that's U.S. Select Team member Dakota Mathias. Yes. So put some respect on the name, everyone out there listening. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do like how you said the game that Ben Simmons had three points as if that was some rare one-off occurrence and not something that became more and more troubling and eventually doomed our season. Um, but, but otherwise, yeah, that was, that was a fun game for sure. Oh, no, Andrew, AU has tagged me on it, uh, tagged me on Twitter multiple times. Like, my whole Danny Green is weirder than Ben Simmons argument got, like, shattered, like, several <laughs> times throughout the playoffs. It was – I, I admit defeat on that completely. Like, Danny is very weird too, but, like, I mean, there's yeah. – Ben Simmons is, like, contending for weirdest player in NBA history at this point. Well, Danny, Danny being a key guy that got injured during the playoffs is extremely unweird because it seems like every other guy is suffered yeah. a similar fate. So he, ben, he was very norm core by getting injured and missing the, the uh, ben, remainder of the playoffs. Whereas Ben Simmons with four minutes left in a game seven passed up an open dunk for reasons that are still bizarre. Yes. So you, uh. you, you definitely take a huge L on that one. I, I'm glad I was on the right side of history on that uh. podcast. All right, we should get back to some more positive stuff um, because we're already telling. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of sticking here because that's like the early season. Um, 
you guys remember that game the Sixers won against the Raptors? I believe they were down by a lot, like in the third quarter. And then they came back. Seth had a big shot that I put them up five. And the, the fun thing that everyone was saying after the game, because I think the Sixers had started five and one at that point, is like that was a game the Sixers never win. That was a game like the shot Seth Curry hit is a shot yes. no Sixer ever hit. So it was just kind of like, oh, like that's really cool. They usually would lose a game. And obviously, the Raptors did not end up being as good this season as most people would have thought at the start. But it was just kind of like one of those fun moments where like, yeah, it's exactly that. It's years of watching the Sixers lose that same game, and this time they win it. So that was a fun moment. For sure. That almost feels like a turning point for the Raptors, even though it was so early, because I think they were winless they started off at that. the time. They, they were they had like an unbelievable stretch of like when they started at like three and nine, like like eight of those were close games and then went like oh and eight. Like they were losing every yeah. game five or four. And to but and I think at the time they were like oh and three or oh and four when mm. when the game you're talking about and that would have been a big win over the Sixers who you know ended up being the one seed and they blew it and they really weren't able to turn it around for any meaningful stretch the whole year. Mm. So I, I was just looking up uh, the box score from that game. Um, yeah, I, I do remember thinking like how unusual it was that the Sixers won. And uh, yeah, that, that was the, they started out 0 two, the Raptors were 0 three after that game. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, it was, it was great to get, there was still some residual like, Oh, they're the team that beat us in the 2019 playoffs. So there was a lot of that. We got one back on Toronto kind of feel to it, even though they obviously weren't the same team as that addition, but you know, for, for a fan base, you, you kind of carry those things over. So that, that was a great feeling for sure. I mean, and even then, like even after the bad start, Dan mentioned that still felt like a great win because like I would have been shocked if you told me the Raptors were missing the playoffs. I expected them to be, you know, competing for home court in the first round. So that, at the time, that was like, a, that was a big win. <laughs> that was back when they were still starting Aaron Baines and Aaron Baines was Ooh. like a guy Sixers fans hated from his Celtic days. Yes. So it, that, that added a little extra spice to it. <laughs> no, the um, Raptors, I mean, the Raptors had such a weird season, like basically injuries and COVID completely wrecked them on top of like, we said like they had like a positive point differential, even finishing with their record because they lost just a ton of close games. Um, I do remember we did because we did a pod like right after that, Sean. You were adamant when everyone was saying Seth is the only sixer to ever hit that shot that JJ Redick would have hit that shot in that scenario. And I remember like kind of disagreeing over that. Do you remember this? I, I mean that JJ has hit like regular season games. JJ Redick has hit plenty of those shots. You don't want to talk about the Celtics series where he missed the open one? <laughs> That's a completely different scenario. <laughs> That's one of the I, more painful misses. I was in the building when JJ Redick had about nine threes against the Pacers in a regular season game a couple years back. So he, he has definitely hit those shots. Um, but it was good to see. It, it, it's still not a, a usual occurrence for a Sixer to hit those shots. So it was definitely fun to see Seth hit it there. Mm-hmm. And Seth continued the tradition of him being the only one to hit shots during the Hawks series. But <laughs> no, no need to talk about that. Sean, how, what's your next one on good things to remember? Um, I wanted to talk about Toby's game winner over the Lakers back in January. I, I bet we all had that written down. Yeah, that was sure. probably, probably, <laughs> probably a top three moment for everyone across the board. Um, first, it was that, the, you know, the Lakers obviously didn't have the best season, but LeBron and AD were both healthy for that game. So even though they weren't like the one seed in the West at the time, everyone kind of think like, oh, it's the defending champs. This is a measuring stick game for the Sixers and this new roster. Like they've had some success so far this season, but let's let's see how they really stack up against an elite squad. And uh, LeBron and AD, you know, represented that for us. So they first, they, they really played well all throughout the game and they, they should have had a convincing, you know, double digit win. But then they they kind of sixers it down down the stretch and it, and it looked like they were going to lose maybe and it would have been like classic disasters sixers loss but then they didn't and it was because Tobias hit hit the game winner and so it kind of served two dual purposes one hey this isn't the sixers team that's going to completely blow these games anymore and two Tobias can be that guy that can be the closer for for this team and uh, that was when he. I think it's between that and the Knicks game where he started yelling, I'm an effing all-star that those were the two 
signature Tobias moments of the seasons. Like, hey, he can be that guy. And he kind of shed the last remaining vestiges of like, this is a bum contract and he doesn't deserve it. Like that, that was the start of everyone fully getting on board with Tobias. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just a great moment for a lot of reasons. Yeah. I mean, like even, even when their season ended so poorly, Tobias did not have a good last few games that series, but I don't think anyone had a big problem with him. Cause like the whole thing, like watching Tobias in that series, like, he was taking the same shots. They just weren't falling as much. I don't know how much you can really ask besides like, Hey, do you make a few more shots? And it was nothing. It was still much better than his previous playoff performances where it felt like he just couldn't hit open three to save his life. It was, he had a lot of big shots trying to keep them in those games. Um, I also, for an early season moment for Tobias Harris had his posterization over Bismack Biombo, which was still one of the most surprising dunks like I've ever seen. How many hands did he use? exactly one but um (laughs) no I got I got tagged so much after that but um you know it was just so surprising when he did that and yeah it was I mean that was just kind of one of the good things of the season is seeing Toby just blossom into a role that after two years of disappointment I think most of us didn't expect from him to go from the player punching bag to basically I mean I don't know how you want to rank them but like He's up there. As, he was up there as one of the most beloved players on the team. Embiid, obviously, number one. Uh, guys like Tyrese Maxey and Paul Reed have a special place for a lot of people. But, like, Sixers fans love Toby now. Um, we could say most of the Toby hates probably been shifted toward Ben for reasons we don't have to go into. But, uh, yeah, no, you're exactly right. Like, just – I mean, is the Tobias game winner versus the Lakers the best moment of the Sixers season? I would say it's not. I think that I, I, I want to say that my favorite, I mean, it's half moment, half game, but like the Jazz win right before the All-Star break that included Embiid's game tying contested three. Yeah. Um, included him bowling over Gobert, scoring 40. Um, and Tobias did take over an overtime of that game. But I feel like that Joel shot and like, I guess I'll kind of like mix this in with another one on my list, but like that Joel shot gave us, you know, one of the key wins of the season. It was right before the all-star break. So we had, you know, a full week to do nothing but watch that. And um, that basically cemented him as the all-star favorite halfway through. Like after that game, after he put up 40 on Gobert, hit that big shot, the Sixers win. Like those are things that those are the MVP type, did I say all? I meant MVP. Yeah, yeah, MVP um, favorite. Yeah. yeah, those are the things that that you know have you in the MVP conversation. Those are the MVP type moments. Um, and after that game, his odds went from, you know, I think tied with LeBron or slightly behind him to ahead of LeBron. So I mean, he ended the first half as the favorite for the award, and I, I think that that's like all baked into that one moment. So for me, that would probably be my number one on court moment of the season. Yeah, the, the, both those games were my top two. I didn't, I didn't do a. Well, this is one and this is two, but those two games were at the top for me. Yeah, Embiid just dropping forty and nineteen against Rudy. You had Toby going right at uh, Bogdanovich and uh, Royce O'Neal in in overtime to to act as the closer again, and then the, my favorite part about that game was Donovan Mitchell afterwards saying. In his personal opinion, they won the game. Oh yeah, I forgot even, about that. Even though Ben Simmons held him to zero of five shooting in overtime, um, so just Donovan Mitchell being anti-fax about like how scoreboards work and just being completely salty about the loss, um, and everyone piling on uh, the Jazz on Twitter and social media and everything. That that was just a, a real high for the Sixers fan experience this year for on and off court reasons. So that was a great moment for this, that, this past year. That was actually the moment I knew that the jazz could not win a title. Like <laughs> I really liked that jazz team and like, it didn't take away from the win. Like what a great win, but you know, they were the one seed, they had the best record in, in the entire NBA. They looked great. Uh, and they, they were deep. They had, you know, Mitchell, if he, he kept up what he had done in the playoffs of last year, they had the star power and I felt good about them. And then Mitchell said that, and it was just like the most loser thing I've ever heard after a loss. Like, no, I think we actually won when you just literally didn't win the game. I was like, there's no chance they can win this year if that's their mindset. Yeah. It's it's not like boxing where 
a judge yeah. determines it and you could be there there could be some uh debate about like well i don't really agree with that decision like dude that the ball goes in the net and the points go on the scoreboard there's a pretty definitive winner and you're not it pal <laughs> no uh, that was definitely i wanted to touch on the jazz just gonna do my nerdy basketball spiel here um like i mean you said them getting knocked out i'm still thinking about that clipper series they had last time you guys were watching that game i'm guessing you saw the game six where i mean you want to give credit to the jazz in a great season and game it was hard on them because they were missing mike conley who was so good for them losing two to Kawhi is pretty much a disaster without when the clippers didn't have Kawhi is pretty much a disaster and i mean that game six it their their game six loss against the clippers is what the game five loss against the hawks was to us because having that huge lead although i mean the jazz were not without uh fault in that game but if you remember the Clippers, I think hit 14 of their first 17 threes, which, you know, isn't supposed to happen like in the history of basketball. So that's one of those ones where it's kind of like, I don't know what you do with that, but yeah, it's, it is interesting to think after such great seasons from the Sixers and Jazz, you now look back on it. I mean, they're probably the two saltiest teams leaving the playoffs, like two, which like every other team can either think, oh, we weren't good enough or we have so-and-so excuse like the Nets obviously wanted to win a title but it's like yeah we were our two of our best players got injured what are we supposed to do the Nuggets were pro I thought maybe could win the title but Jamal Murray got hurt um you know you want to go through the list stuff like that or Sixers Danny Green there you go (laughs) exactly so it's like yeah I don't know if that all makes sense but it's kind of weird I like the little parallels between that yeah there are definitely other parallels like I mean, this is not going to be popular because we fight with the Jazz all the time. But I think there's such an easy parallel to draw between Gobert and Simmons. Like, like consistently struggle in the playoffs, you know, top one and two in defensive player I, of the I year. Would, I, would say that Rudy, I would say that Rudy was better than Ben pretty clearly. Oh, no, yeah. I agree. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, uh, like, privately, but I think that, you know, Rudy has a, a bit of an excuse in that he's surrounded by just, like, dreadful defenders which you know against a small ball team made it especially hard to do the one thing he's good at whereas like Ben still played like pretty good defense but like he like he wasn't in that kind of impossible situation that Gobert was I felt like mm-hmm. well moving on to another one I want to touch on because similar to that how like kind of how much joy we got out of taking down the Jazz and the Lakers for the Sixers um I point out the game where they officially swept the Celtics for the season. It was pretty clear the Celtics were like doomed this year. That that was pretty fun. There was a, I don't know what the right word is. It's almost predatorial nature and like taking down the Celtics. It just felt good to end them like that and like how how much the Sixers dominated them. And that was uh, that was the game that Tatum did play too. So it wasn't yeah. like they in their second meeting, the Celtics had been kind of a skeleton squad and it was like, oh, yeah, we beat Boston. But that wasn't really Boston. But, yeah, that last game in uh, April when it was both members of the J team played and uh, I think they had their whole starting lineup out there and the Sixers just, you know, I think they won by 10. It was they just kind of kicked to their butt and it's like, oh yeah, the Sixers are definitely the better team now. There's like no question about it. And to come from the last playoffs when the Celtics just wiped the floor with Philadelphia to to then, it was a complete 180 and kind of it was the the ships passing the night and the Sixers were going in the other direction and seeing the lantern on the mel- the mast of the Celtics ship like go out in the distance that that was a it was a nice feeling for sure well I have one it's this is another one that like it kind of depends how you view it I think some people view it with disappointment I thought it was one of the coolest moments of the season which is Joel's full court shot that almost went in yeah uh, off the missed free throw where he what was it 0.8 seconds catch and heave um would have tied the game and, and rimmed out. That was, I thought, one of the coolest things I ever saw. And even though it didn't go in, I still look back at it with, you know, some – and, it, like, it was a loss. But it, it was just – it wasn't a meaningful game, so it was kind of whatever. And I just look back at that one moment with, like, a bit of, you know, admiration. Definitely, like, I'm not sad looking back on that moment. I think it was, a, a like, a, a happier moment where it was like, 
this guy is making these ridiculous plays and this would have been, you know, the greatest shot I ever saw basically. But even so, it was probably the best miss I ever saw. No, that was an incredible moment. Just, it doesn't make like physical sense how a human can do that and have as quickly as he did throw it and throw it that accurately. Um, Similar to how you said after Donovan Mitchell said that quote, like you kind of knew the Jazz weren't winning. Maybe it was after we saw that shot, we knew the Suns were winning the title because it's, it's just their year when the shot like that is that close to going in and it doesn't like, maybe things are just breaking your way that year. I mean, not to discredit the Suns, they're a great team. It was, I mean, they're they're really good. I don't, you guys probably been watching them a lot too. They're, they're, they've got everything down right now. So, but yeah, that was- That's when everything broke right for the Suns. Not, not when they went a month without losing <laughs> towards the oh, end was that specific <laughs> moment sean <laughs> yes <laughs> now yeah that was i mean that was amazing that that near make um if that had gone in it it literally might have been like the dr j play and then that as like the top two moments in sixers basketball history um and i don't think that's much of an overstatement uh also people were logging on in the morning and like hey i gotta watch that shot again it yeah, just, it was, they people people couldn't believe that it went out because it would it just had such a pure quality to it. Um, it's just still thinking about it. I'm just kind of shaking my head, like how did that not go in? It, it it's clearly like one of the more definitive shots that will stick in my memory for for a long time. Also from that game, Danny Green getting dropped while trying to full court check Chris Paul. I just thought it was really funny. <laughs> It yeah, was uh, very on brand Danny moment for you. If we're talking about other Danny moments, like game four against the wizards where he was feeling it for a little bit. And he tried that heat check and transition that like hit the side of the backboard. <laughs> Just, and the best part was it, it went out of bounds on Washington. So the Sixers, yeah the ball and so danny could just like laugh about it and he, he did like yeah. well what did you expect me to do i hit three shots in a row obviously i'm going to do that it, the way he does is he checks in transition because so like he's leaning forward so far and he looks so weirdly off balance like it's like his body's at a diagonal to the floor which does not seem like the right way to shoot at all and i mean as we've seen like just an absolute sniper from the corners, but very clearly not a great above the break three point shooter this season yet that never dissuaded him from trying it. So I do appreciate Danny's like need to be the comic relief at times. It is appreciated. Well, I guess, you know, if Dwight's not in, you need a different comic relief because I, I think, you know, that's another one of my, you know, moments. It's not even really a moment, but just like every dumb thing Dwight did all season. I loved all of it except in the playoffs. But in the regular season, I loved all of it. I didn't love him, like, running over Trey Young. But <laughs> to be honest, that was hilarious. You could totally see it coming, like, two seconds before it happened. Oh, yeah. And he just absolutely, like, it wasn't like you just bumped into him. He literally did just run him over. I mean, he literally ran, like, he ran all the way through. Like, he, he, like, it's not like he, yeah, it wasn't a bump. Like, he was running as he hit him. He was not slowing down. He literally didn't see him there. And toppled over him. Like, it's like in the regular season, those moments were really funny when the Sixers had to like go without a center because Dwight was getting ejected for no reason. People were mad. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, didn't love the dumb moments in the playoffs, but he was definitely another comic relief. Hmm. Yeah. Dwight assuming the like unpaid sponsorship of the frosty freeze out that, that was great. Him, him doing the LeBron esque, uh, chalk throw before every game him back when there weren't fans at the arenas um like gesturing to the crowd as if there were people there um that like that was amazing like Dwight Dwight was definitely a valuable member of the team this past season um and we shouldn't let the fact that Doc got stuck with using him in the playoffs both because there wasn't a real stretch five option um, outside of Joel and because Doc sticks with his veterans a little too much. Um, we shouldn't like let that detract from the overall Dwight experience. Like Dwight being put in a position to fail in the playoffs is not necessarily his fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking about the, like you talked about the Mullies having to play without Dwight because of the ejections and the technicals. I'm um, thinking back to another short handed game. Uh, I mean, it was upsetting at the time because it almost derailed the Sixers for a bit, that losing streak when they had the, went through all their COVID protocols early after Seth Curry 
tested positive and they had all the contact tracing, you know, you all remember that. But the, the fame infamous game against the Nuggets with seven players where Tyrese Maxey dropped 39. Uh, I mean, you, most people are probably upset that game was happening, but I mean, that was fun to watch Tyrese go off like that and just realize like, even in a game where he's playing that many minutes, there's not really anyone else to pass to that much. Um, I mean, Danny, I think Danny Green was playing that game. They had him running pick and roll a lot, which tells you exactly what was happening. Like, it was just wild that they stayed in the game versus the Nuggets for that long. So, but no, great to see Maxi. You could put so many Maxi moments on here, but I wanted to include his 39 piece because that was a really fun time. There were, there were some other great moments in the playoffs too. Like, game six was definitely a Maxi game. Like, I mean, this is maybe less of a positive moment I think it's a positive maxi moment. Like the team came out with nothing to start game six. Um, I don't know if, I mean, I mean, you were saying it before. I, li- I mean, I listened to your guys pod after game five and you were like, there's, there's just no way they're winning this series. Um, and they, they, I can't believe they won game six the way they came out. They certainly came out looking like, you know, they, they were very dejected, but maxi showed a ton of heart. Uh, and he in the first half took him from, I think down like low double digits to, to tying the game and he was fantastic. And it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of sad to think that he's probably, you know, if we have any real hopes of a, of a like true second, you know, high level star, Max, he's probably gone um, because teams are going to want him and he's something we have to give, but. I, I, or, or Max, he is the second high level star. Just well, he might optimistic. be. Be optimistic. <laughs> he might be, I mean, but he's just, he's, he's so much fun and he looks so happy all the time. He'll like make a shot and then smile as he gets back on defense, which I love. Um, and I think the the heart he played with was, um, and even in in the awful moments, like I don't think anyone felt good. You know that that game six had to be played, and that we were down in the series as that game six was played in Atlanta. Um, and the start was bad. That they lost the next game. That was bad. But he was just like constantly, you know playing hard, you know, um, looking and maybe, maybe part of it is, you know, you know, you and Jackson talked about this on like Spotify green room, which was then locker room, but you know, he does bring a different pace. And so sometimes just by playing fast, maybe it seems like he's playing, you know, with extra heart compared to this other Sixers who can sometimes really like slob around. But, um, he, I thought he really, he brought it in some big moments and for a rookie that that was a lot of fun. No, and like that in game six, like you're talking about, I specifically from that game, I remember um, when he hit the three, when they ducked under his ball screen again in the fourth quarter that put the Sixers up nine before they waved it off because they called the foul on the Hawks against. It was amazing that Dwight didn't get called for the foul, but he <laughs> did enough of contact wise to get it waved off. But Maxi hits that three. We're all going crazy. And Maxi runs over the bench and he that I mean of course the Sixers bench is going wild and him and, and Seth Curry po- both point directly at each other which was cool to see um and also even though it ended up not working out well I did appreciate Seth holding up seven fingers like Steph Curry did to the OKC crowd to the Atlanta crowd to show that they were going to game seven um yeah, I think Seth's allowed to do it because he did show up for game seven too Seth showed up for each game so he can do it like imagine if Ben had done that <laughs> well, he had 13 assists. He did his job. Did you see what Trey Young's shooting line was? <laughs> uh. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Did, it, did uh, anyone uh, put together uh, Maxi and Seth pointing at each other alongside the Spider-Man meme? Because I think that would be... I, I, I posted the picture of them pointing at each other. I didn't put it on the Spider-Man meme, but I just said it, give, it gave me a lot of joy to see that those two like each other and that... I mean, that's one of the best things about the Sixers this season is this. It's very clear they all love Tyrese. Like, they all want him to succeed all the time. Him and, uh, I mean, Paul Reed's the one. Paul Reed definitely is like Joel Embiid's guy where, I mean, that was another one I written down when Paul Reed had that put-back dunk, like, and Embiid lost his mind. So th- those are pretty good moments. Just both of those guys are really great. And, 
I mean, even Isaiah Joe, Isaiah Joe is probably the most quote unquote normal of them. He's basically, he sometimes comes in and sometimes he hits threes, sometimes draws a charge. That's about it. Didn't really do much else. He's not, he doesn't have the very visible like joy of Tyrese Maxey or the elite Twitter game of Paul Reed. So, you know, he's going to be the lower profile guy, but I mean, all the rookies were really fun this year. So that's good. The team definitely seemed to like each other a lot, which was a lot of fun. I mean, the bench was the bench was lively until after Game Seven, where I don't know how much Embiid liked that anymore. <laughs> well, that was I. Oh, I wish I could. I want to say it was Mike Bradley who tweeted it, but um, you know, someone tweeted out uh, the um, the like Doc quote talking about the how he does exit interviews. And he's like, oh, yeah, every, everything's on the table. Uh, the only thing you can't talk about is other players. And I want to say it was like Mike Bradley who said something like, oh, that must be a new rule. <laughs> because because everyone was just going to be, you know, going after probably Ben. It's like a special protocol. Pro- break in case of player passes up open dunk in game seven. There's no way no one was going to talk about that if that wasn't a rule. So, <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, that 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 play I think broke Joel. I think he was he if was you, trying to be a helpful teammate for a long time and be supportive, but I think that was the the final straw that broke broke the camel's back. We talk we talked about it. If you like freeze frame right where he passes up, literally before Matisse even goes up and gets the foul call, because the thing is they were so clear underneath because Seth, Toby, and Joel are all standing above the break and like had been kind of in semi transition. At the moment he passes. All three of their arms go up in the air like this. Like, I know it's a podcast so people can't see, but they literally all threw their arms up in the air. They all couldn't believe it. These are his three peers and Seth, Toby, and Embiid on the court. And instead, he's like, no, I shall give the responsibility to Matisse, who Matisse also was not cutting until the pass came to him because Matisse, like most people, thought he was about to dunk the basketball. There, there was a uh, we're really veering off of the positive moments now but it's hard because every time you think about Ben there's not it's just your mind goes straight to that I know there's the one NBA YouTuber and I forget his name who made the video of like guys playing pickup and he was like con- consistently passing up open layups to contested teammates and then yelling at his teammates for missing these contested looks um, and he posted that after game seven and it was pretty funny but also kind of sad yeah uh. Yeah, we need to get back on the positive path. Uh, Sean, what do you have? Um, I'm going to talk about the Furkan Korkmaz experience. I feel like there's a chance that he's not back next year. He is a free agent. It seems um, more likely that he won't be than he will be. Yeah, of of the guys that have a chance to go this year, he's pretty high on the list of you know guys that might not stick around. And just just think like people kind of thought he was gone a couple years ago and then they bring him back. It, it, it was kind of a, a struggle, like a why not? They gave him the minimum. And then he, he really had some meaningful moments for this team. And, uh, you know, not only in, last year in, in the, the bubble year, he, he had some moments, but also this year um, in the playoffs, they, he ends up being the starter for them down the stretch, which, not a great situation to be in when he's forced to be a starter, but he, he did have a, a, a few nice moments. He had the, the game when he really struggled, he's out on the court after the game practicing. And I like somewhat jokingly tweeted like, Oh, we all know that Cork Moss is going to come out and be the, the bench player that really pops next game because it had been a, a stretch of Maxi doing it and then shake. And now uh, he kind of took the baton and then he came out and I think he had uh, like 11 points in the fir- first quarter of that next game. Um, just a guy that uh, he had his, his limitations certainly. Um, and no one expects him to ever be like a, a quality starter in the league. I think he's kind of plateaued where he is at this point, but he made improvements on the defensive end and uh, just a really fun guy to be around him and Matisse struck up a nice friendship this year. Um, I think we talked in a previous pod about how they would probably be the uh, the bromance of the team if we had to vote on that again. Um, and I I just love his little quips after games when he you know he gets a podium game and you know back when he made it rain and he, he was just a really fun guy to have on the team. Um, if he's not around next season, uh, 
you know, I'm going to miss, miss having him on the roster. Uh, it, it, I think we'll need to, if, if it's officially announced he's signing somewhere else, we'll, we'll go a little more in depth with a, a popping the cork segment, but just wanted to give, give him a, a little, little props for what was a, overall a very positive season for Furkan. Third longest tenured Philadelphia 76er, Furkan Korkmaz, right after Joel and Ben. Which He's is basically, kind of- I mean, I guess he did a year overseas, right? But in terms of having his rights, he's like tied with Ben. Yeah, well, he's played now, yeah, four seasons with the Sixers. Um, it's hard because he barely played at all that first season that anyone can remember. And it's still like spot minutes second season. It wasn't until he came back on that minimum in 2020 where he finally – because, I mean, 2020 was like – and how depressing that whole season was for Con, like breaking out, so to say, was one of the real like joys of that season. Just – or the back – was it the back-to-back 30-point games, I think. Um, so that was all – felt fun and good and he, he struggled a good bit at times this season and I mean it's not his fault he had to start in those four games he wasn't that great really struggled with some things but you know I mean he's like he did some of the similar Danny Green stuff where he'll take some very weird shots and you do need the comic relief at times in a very long season obviously funnier during the regular season when that stuff's happening but always love the confidence and just it is fun on a team that has previously had shooting struggles to watch a guy who can really get hot from three, no matter how weird it looks. He's got that absolute line drive form that doesn't make sense why it goes in as much as it does. Cause he is, I mean, just straight above his head, like throwing it on a straight line to the rim and he can still make it sometimes. So, but any, like we will miss his awkwardly large feet in Philadelphia if he leaves. Needs to find a league where the sidelines are a little bit larger. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's my, my main helpful advice for him. Dan, what do you got for other – do you have any other favorite things you want to talk about? Yeah, I have a couple. Here's one I'll give. Uh, Paul Reed won G League MVP. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also came on the Gash Run to Write His Blues podcast. So I would say you know, those Paul Reed moments were, were up there for me. Um, He's the Sixers have, you know, the other players have very funny things to say about Paul. Um, they, you know, their comments about him and not that they don't like him or anything. They just seems to imply that he doesn't always know what's going on, like not in games, just like in general, like it's like confused a lot. Um, I think there was the one Tobias Harris quote where um, uh, the, I think it was on Danny Green's podcast where um he was asked, you know, Tobias was about to get married and was like, who would you least want to officiate your wedding? And he said Paul Reed because he wouldn't even know why he was there or what was going on. Um, so I think Paul Reed, Paul Reed was a, a welcome addition, had some funny moments. Uh, the winning G League MVP was, you know, I don't think a, an award that any of us had ever thought about before this season, but it was a lot of fun that he won it. Um, and it was cool that he came and talked with Liberty Ballers. So that would be up there for me. Yeah, I mean, everything Paul Reed did was just, I mean, the only upsetting part about the Paul Reed experience is that we all wanted Doc to play him more than Mike Scott, who, shocker, I don't think Mike Scott made the list for me. Did he make it for either of you guys? <laughs> he's, he's actually not on my list. I Some wow. people might think he was snubbed, but. Mike Scott not even coming out off the bench to uh, be an enforcer when we got in a scuffle with the Hawks. Like if ever there was a moment for Mike Scott to like step up and, and be that guy, that would have been it. Um, Cause he wasn't part of the rotation. There had been like no negative ramifications basketball wise for him getting a one game suspension or whatever. Uh, that, that, that could have really like cemented the endearing send off that fans might've had from Mike Scott. And he didn't do it. So that was a little disappointing. Where was the guy in the pink polo? that we needed at that moment you know all the stuff you can say about mike this season like he is eternally redeemed because of that game four the game four shot against the nets in 2019 which is forever the mike scott game it it just is you didn't force elton to use the mid-level exception on him yeah again like it's like blaming it's like be mad at doc for keeping dwight and be mad at elton for giving him the mid-level you know don't blame the player (laughs) but um uh, another moment I had on here was um, 
when the Sixers were playing without Embiid and they beat the Pacers using that two three zone with Matisse and Ben at the top. Yeah. Had to get some good. We hadn't talked about Matisse really yet, or and Ben we've talked about, but he's we haven't talked about the good moments of Ben really. Um, but that was a really fun game just in terms of seeing the great defensive potential of the Sixers, how they just like I mean they completely broke the Pacers in that fourth quarter. They had no idea how to attack them. Matisse and Ben got their hands on everything. Dwight was in the middle, got a lot of blocks. I think that was a pretty good Dwight game, if I remember. And just anytime they win without Embiid against a team that doesn't absolutely suck, which, I mean, the Pacers weren't good this year, but they were not, like, they were not, oh, what's the right word? They, I mean, they're not a cupcake team. Like, you aren't going to just run through the Pacers. You have They to were actually, competent. Yes, that's it. There you go. That's the word. But, um, yeah, the just to see that zone break broken out and how well they played in that game to come back and win that was a that was a fun win and one I think the team could definitely hang their hat on for a while yeah would have liked to see them go back to that maybe a couple more times throughout the season because uh, yeah Matisse and Ben that's just a lot of it's a lot long, of arms long-limbed defensive instincts coming at you in a like swirling tornado not unlike the cloverfield monster if if you're out on the court against them so yeah uh that that would have been really interesting to kind of go back to a little bit more not not unlike how the heat have used their zone defense as as a bit of a change up to teams in the past um yeah i wouldn't mind to see seeing that because yeah you're right that was really a fun uh like 16 minutes of sixers basketball this season just seeing those guys unleashed i think we should force dan to say his favorite ben ben simmons moment of the season just for old time's sake what is your your best ben simmons memory from the 2021 season i guess the i guess the utah game they lost where he had 42 42 i i yeah i was even when ben was super hot i was skeptical uh because we've seen him do it before and I think it's hard to to change habits. It's kind of what I said even when Tobias got hot early and and he was, you know, he had the the few shots in like the first couple of weeks where he had a quick release and he was shooting them well. And he didn't really do that the rest of the season. He I mean, he played a lot better because he made the same shots, um, but he wasn't playing quick. He wasn't making quick decisions. It's hard to change habits like that. Um and I think like for Ben to have a scoring mindset, like, yeah, he could do it for a couple of weeks. Um, but I didn't see him doing it long-term. And I think when, you know, when things get important, like in the playoffs, I didn't really see him doing that. I kind of saw him going back to his comfort zone. Um, but that stretch was fun. I mean, he's clearly better when he plays with that mindset as I, I think everyone recognized, including his coaches, the challenge is just getting him to do it. But I guess that stretch with that 42 point game would have been my, my, the 40, that game would have been my favorite bad moment. He, he really did look dominant, but. I think we should also mention his game winning tip in versus San Antonio, which was, I, you guys remember that game. I'm guessing uh, the we run about that one was, that was a game again. The Sixers probably should have won by a lot more. It was a pretty bad game, but with a good result with the win there. Um, I don't even think Ben played really that well in that game. He just had the game-winning tip. But, you know, a game-winner is a game-winner. It, it was at the buzzer, and it was a really great play by him to make it. So, you know, kudos for that. Um, also, while we mentioned Matisse briefly there with the zone, um, I was just thinking about other Matisse moments because usually it's hard to pinpoint one Matisse moment because you're always thinking, like, like very specific moments in a game, like when he blocks it and saves it from going out of bounds or makes some insane recovery, some kind of steal. I do want to put it down uh, for this one, um, though, uh, when they did lose that game to the Suns, because if you remember, yes, he, like, gave Devin Booker, like, and Devin Booker eventually won out because he hit that incredibly tough shot. I mean, there's a reason the Suns are in the finals. They're really good. But um, Matisse, like, basically made Devin Booker's life, like, just hell that night. He could not get free from him, no matter what he did. So just seeing that Matisse does have that great potential now, Obviously, it doesn't apply to All-Stars. I th- think well, every star, like, I mean, Matisse couldn't really handle Trey Young in the series. Like, Trey was just Trey, – Trey knew how to play off of Matisse, right? He knew how to bait him into the right stuff. But, you know, like, Matisse yeah. is still very good, like, this whole season. And it's great to see they have this defensive weapon out there. And just 
that game against Devin Booker where he was constantly getting away, had the one block shot where he like absolutely swatted it into the next few stands, like was like standing over it. So that's a moment that sticks out to me when I think about Matisse. Matisse made an all defensive team averaging 22 minutes a game. So least ever minutes average to make it, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So everything about Matisse has to be viewed, I think, positively. He he even started, I mean, flashing a little bit more offensive stuff as as the season went on. I I, I think his three point shot is good it's enough. Fine. It, yeah. he, he was basically yeah. like 33 percent in the playoffs, and like I'll take one out of every three for Matisse. Like I don't think teams yeah. can just completely ignore him. It's not like a, it's not that bad of a Tony Allen situation where. Like, there's just no chance the shot's going in. He can make threes if you leave him open. He takes them, too. I mean, he's not he's not passing up open looks to the point where it's like you don't even need to go out there. I actually I – th- I it might have been Jackson Frank, our good friend who pointed this out. I want to say it was him. It might not have been. But I remember something about, like, the big difference is Matisse in the Hawks series took 14 threes. George Hill only took eight, which, I mean – that just shows you the difference because, like, George Hill is definitely thought of as a better shooter than Matisse, but it shows the different levels of aggressiveness. That, and obviously, they're gonna, not going to leave George Hill open as much as they left Matisse open, but just Matisse, like, understanding, okay, like, I'm letting them off the hook here if I don't do anything. It's, it's almost very much what we feel like we want from Ben Simmons, where it's like, yeah, if you just aren't willing to take it, the defense feels like they can get away with it, whereas Matisse like, well, I got to try and punish them then for giving me this shot, so he went for it. Whereas George Hill's a little bit more of a passive player, you know, kind of, and it's not to say George Hill's like the fault for why the Sixers lost, but I think it's like an interesting point that, yeah, just that willingness to take them can open the up the offense for a little bit for you, even if you're still not a great shooter yet, like Matisse is. I've noticed George Hill hasn't made your list. Do you hate George Hill? I mean, do you have some anti-George Hill agenda? He hasn't been on your list. My favorite George Hill moments also in the Sun season where I posted the screenshot where he like almost matrix level bent his knee to like the do you guys yeah. remember that? the one crossover where like I don't know how he could get his knee that low without it touching the ground and like stay on balance because I think it was Cam Johnson he kind of shook on that move it, it literally looked like a shady McCoy cut like is what it looked like so I remember it's, like, very, that. it's very much like George George Hill though it's like yeah he's he's fine he but he doesn't really stand out in your mind that much unless he Unless, unless he does something very bad, usually. But that, that's probably the one really good moment I remember from him. Yeah, I mean, our main thing, our running bit with George Hill was that he was the most normal man in the NBA. So. He's got a normal name. He And basically, <laughs> his whole shtick is that he doesn't hurt you on either end, and he's kind of okay at everything. Except this year, because you, no one can be normal on the Sixers. It's not allowed. But, like, what, how was he not normal this year? Like, he basically did exactly what I would think a bench guard would do in the playoffs. Like, he wasn't great, but he didn't kill them. He, I, think he, I think he hurt them more than your more than you're selling there. Yeah, I don't. I was kind of expecting the George Hill of past postseasons, like B- Milwaukee George Hill, where he came in and, in my opinion, he was the third best player for the Bucks in in their in one of those postseasons. To be fair, that might be more of a comment on just how bad Eric Bledsoe was in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean George Hill shouldn't have been their third best player, but I don't think he was even like tops seven for the Sixers I I just don't think he was nearly aggressive enough offensively as he needed to be I, I guess he was fine defensively he never was getting roasted or anything but yeah I just I don't think he was as much of a positive force as we all kind of expected I mean fair enough I it's but it's the same thing with Georgia like yeah it wasn't good I still don't think like when I've talked to, when I've seen other Sixers fans talking or stuff like that, and there's plenty of things you can blame or stuff like that, or, or maybe another good one is like, so my dad watches all these Sixers games with me and he, he agrees with me when I said, but he always like, he just hates the way the refs officiate Trey Young. He, as he says, like, he's even been frustrated in this Bucks series. Like he says, Giannis is getting his arms grabbed every time he's near the paint and they don't call it. Someone blows on Trey Young and it's a foul. But, and I agree that it is kind of frustrating, but then like, you really can't go away from anything that other than at least if you're thinking from the Sixers perspective, uh, then 18 point lead in game four and a 26 point lead in game five, win those games. And that's out. That's it. You, that's all you have to do. And they somehow lost both of those games back to back. By the way, I refuse to blame doc for that entirely. Like doc deserves blame for a lot of things. Like 
um, especially like game one was awful and, and the rotations were not good throughout the, the um, Danny green game one first half will live in infamy just in terms of like, yeah. dude, what are you looking at here? Like I'm fine. Doc deserves a lot of blame for the series, but specifically for those blown leads, like, yes, the leads started to be blown with the bench, but if you can't put your starters back in and have them settle things down, you know, the team does not have a ball handler who can settle the game down when things get tough. Because Ben Simmons is really by far their best ball handler, and he is not stepping up for those moments. And the starters couldn't they, calm they basically, down. That's why they made Seth do it, because they thought, okay, at least Seth might be able to do it. But it's again, it's like asking a lot of Seth Curry. And what is, and like, really, what, it, like, I understand there's a lot to criticize Doc for. I'm, I, you know, I'm not the biggest Doc guy. I'm fine for everything people want to criticize him for. That's all fine with me. But like, for those blown leads, when you put the starters in and you're still up double digits, what more can the coach do? Right. Like the, your starters just need to play basketball. They were great all year and they couldn't, they, they blew the leads. I mean, with your best lineup in for, you know, they, they couldn't hold the leads in the fourth quarter. So, I mean, I, I think that's less, less on, less on doc than, you know, some people have made it out to be, I understand everything else, but I, at some point, you know, your guys need to make the plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they were up 15 with the starters back in the game in the fourth quarter. Like that's, you got to close it out. I guess you can make the argument that like Joel and Seth had had to carry so much of the burden because things hadn't been staggered properly earlier in the game. And then Joel especially just was completely out of gas in that game. Um, But yeah, I don't know how much of that doc could really help because a, there's only so many pieces on the roster he had at his disposal especially after, you know, Danny was injured, but also, you know, Joel was playing on a torn meniscus. So I'm sure that factored into it as much as anything. We somehow we got off track once again, all started yeah. George Hill disagreement. Um, yeah. You know, yeah I, th- I think we should all, you know, we can kind of end on some favorite Joel moments because the guy, the guy was an MVP finalist. He was hands down, had one of the best seasons for like any sixer across the last 40 years probably like the the ai mvp season is obviously like the the benchmark for enjoyable sixers individual seasons but you know joel what he just put together is probably not too far off um so i'll start and this wasn't even we just talked about this game game five of the of the hawk series but that first half oh yeah joel was incredible he was out there and in the span of about five minutes he hit the dirk one legged fadeaway then he hit the pulled off a perfect dream shake along the baseline to hit to hit that shot he was bullying clint capella like he wasn't even there and then just like gesturing to the crowd like he was maximus in the coliseum um he was absolutely doing everything he he looked at the top of his game and you were just sitting there thinking like this is the fully actualized version of Joel Embiid and it still boggles my mind they lost that game because (laughs) I mean they were up what 18 at the half everyone was just like oh this is awesome it's a party like they they finally righted the ship they they'll have two games to close out the series but right now let's just all celebrate and then everything fell apart but my gosh, for that, that first half with Joel, that was incredible for just whatever, like an hour, an hour period. We were just all riding a collective high, just knowing that he was on this team. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was, it ended terribly a couple hours later, but just that was a really fun moment. And it was a nice kind of encapsulation, just how far he's come in his progression as a basketball player and and really how dominant he became especially this season i think we should mention Embiid's 50 piece against the bulls because just we don't he had so many high 40 point games we're all waiting for him to finally crack 50 so that was really exhilarating to see and like just not like a singular moment but all those times he would do like the he'd be like just inside the three-point line do all the crossovers and do like a near james Harden step back just because when a seven foot like a seven foot guy who's almost 300 pounds does that to you. There's like gotta be a part of you that dies as a defender. Cause you just realize what am I supposed to do here? Like there's no answer for this at all. Um, I also wanted to mention, uh, it's not specifically an Embiid moment, but 
remember how after because Ben and Embiid both missed the All Star game due to COVID protocols, and they weren't there for the game against the Bulls, where it was basically all the Sixers subs versus the Bulls, and they still won by like thirty. And that's when Tony Bradley kept scoring over and over again. And Embiid tweeted out, like, I've seen enough build around Tony Bradley. Which <laughs> is a fun night. Um, I, and that is fun. I do want to shout out. Uh, Tony Bradley was fun this year. And they obviously traded him for George Hill, which probably made – I still think makes sense. But it was still very fun to watch him. Like, I, think, I thought he was struggling a lot early in the season, got better progressively. And that Bulls game, as well as the game against the Warriors, where he basically tried to end James Wiseman's young career in one night just by, like, punishing him over and over again. So those are two enjoyable moments for me. But, yeah, like the Embiid 50 piece, that was of all the great moments, just finally seeing him get that. You just want so many good things for the guy, and to see him get that, hit that milestone was great. Yeah, that was um, that was easily one of the highlights of the year as well. And it was on national TV, which was a lot of fun. Um, I this, is, this isn't Joel specific, but team-wide, uh, I really love the big energy chain. Um, and seeing guys wear that around, uh, that was, that was a nice moment. Um, and then also, uh, I have to, I have to squeeze this in here, not Sixers at all, but, uh, Chris Middleton having huge playoff games was really great for me and Dan. And I've enjoyed that. Oh, no, he was okay. So we're going to ignore game four cause he wasn't great in game four, but game three, Chris Middleton, oof, like that down the stretch is hitting all those shots. Cause I mean, it's the same thing we always talk about, like he and Tobias Harris who have had like been compared to each other a lot before they do a lot of the same things where they're not creating separation they don't create easy shots but they're very good at hitting difficult shots Middleton's just like a little bit better at Tobias and like at certain things just including that just like passing just, defense but, but to be fair Tobias like, <laughs> I do think Tobias like my big point is Tobias did close the gap this year Tobias improved oh yeah but it is still like the same thing yet yeah, Chris I mean Chris Middleton was fantastic in game three and Again, the we can't. The, we're recording this before Game Five tonight, and I don't know if Giannis is going to play. He's him. out. He okay. he's officially out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't see that, but um. So Middleton, our hopes are on you because we cannot have the Hawks in the NBA Finals just for our sanity. So sending good vibes your way. Um. Oh, and I wanted to shout just here towards the end because we didn't mention we didn't mention him on this whole podcast till now and had a very up and down year that was so down at the end that people gave up on him uh as you coined sean the earth shake in game two against the hawks yep like that was pretty that was a pretty fun five minutes when shake was hitting all those shots and i still do point out that he was asked to play a very difficult role the whole regular season which was hey here's the all bench lineup can you create everything so that's like not easy for to ask like a 24 year old point guard to do so i i still i was enjoyed seeing shake have that moment where you can, in front of the home crowd, seeing all the Sixers fans who were very clearly not happy with him before go crazy for him in those moments. That was just a very enjoyable moment for me. Yeah, Shake, Shake Milton saved the season, at least for a week. Um, yeah, that was great. Uh, I, I agree with you that he was not put in the best position to succeed all year long. Um, all playoff long, we talk about Doc can't go with the all bench lineup. It's so much of a disaster. Like, what is he thinking? And yet all season long, you're right. It was shake having to make it. So this disastrous all bench lineup that we can't even play in a postseason is like regular season viable. And it's, it's all on him to do that. Um, yeah. That's, that's a tough burden for a guy who's a late second round pick and has had a few nice moments in the league prior to this year, but you know, definitely not like an established consistent player yet at this stage of his career. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. And we we still have optimism about shake moving forward. Um, I think you put him in a position where he can be more of a secondary ball handler creator rather than having to create everything himself. I, I, I still think there's a, a solid rotation player in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you do lose, say, you know, there is, I think everyone's, you know, biggest wishes are are just hoping that maybe Lillard asks out and maybe we can put together the right package and like that probably costs you Ben and Maxi, which have been you know the Sixers two ball handlers throughout you know basically the second half of the season and most of the playoff run I have confidence in Shake, you know being able to you know play more regularly 
uh, if he's put in a better position and, and, you know, keeps getting better, which I expect him to, I mean, to start the year, he was incredible and he should, he gave you a lot. So I, I'm absolutely not giving up on shake. And I, it makes me feel better about, you know, possibly like, what if we lose, you know, these guys who have been handling the ball for us. Um, I think shake is capable of, of, you know, something even better. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking to the guy, the guy who believes in Shake Milton so much, just a, or maybe I don't know if he's even like believes the right word. I just want so many good things for him because I just love Shake. Uh, but yeah, that we've probably gone on long enough. You know, an hour of their good moments is probably as much as they deserve, considering how they went out. But <laughs> probably want to top it off here. Uh, Dan, Sean, uh, anything you guys want to plug before we get going? I got nothing. Yeah, follow uh, follow us on Twitter, and we will be back next week with another edition of the Talking About podcast. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like we can we can kind of move on from the negativity of the the 2021 playoffs. I, I feel like this is a good palate cleanser for us to to remember that even in spite of all the disappointing ways that the season ended, uh, there was still more often than not a lot of great moments this year. Um, you know, the Sixers were the the one seed in the Eastern Conference for the first time in 20 years. They have a guy who finished second in the MVP balloting. They have a guy who was a defensive player of the year runner-up and will hopefully land us someone good in the trade market. Um, so, yeah, it's there, there's still more to be appreciated than discredited about the, the state of Sixers basketball right now. So um, chin up everyone out there listening. Uh, I feel like there's good times to be had ahead. Yeah, that's, this, that all goes out the window if the Hawks win, though. Just remind me, everyone, of that. So Chris Middleton, do your job. Win game five. <laughs> We're going to watch Dario lift the trophy. Everything's going to be great. <laughs> it, it has to be Dario at this point. It, either Dario lifts the trophy or Chris Middleton lifts it. It cannot be an Atlanta Hawk who lifts it. But also, the Bucks fans are really annoying. Giannis kind of annoys me. Like, love Middleton. Not really pulling for that team. We also could, but you can also see Drew Holiday lift the trophy if the Hawks. If the Hawks yeah, win. that's true. Drew was one of my favorite Sixers growing up. So they, you're right. There's a there's a bright side out there. It can go Suns, then Bucks, then Hawks. But like, there's like a big gap between Bucks and Hawks. I, I just can't see the Hawks win the title. I, it's gonna break me. That would be something. Well. I'm just glad there's something to be broken left in you, Daniel, <laughs> after a couple of the pots we've had recently. <laughs> the, the, the listeners will hear, I, I, will, I will put music at the start and end of this pod, just it's been enough time has passed. The two-week yeah. hiatus of our intro music is gone. It's, it's, time, it's time to listen to music again. Exactly. Listening, to, listening to Daniel's change in tone after game five from like everything cool that he loves about every player so like this is just everything is just awful and the Sixers are screwed was was just wild. <laughs> well, I think that's gonna wrap it up for us today. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please subscribe, give us a good rating, all that good stuff, and we will talk to you next week.